Good morning. Um, welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so glad that you could join us this morning. Thank you for bundling up a little bit. I know it's a little chilly. Um, not sure what that was. It sounded bad, whatever it was. Um, glad to see you. Go ahead and turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. That is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we finally arrived at the final chapter of our study uh, in this letter. And as, I, as I've been kind of reminding you guys each week, Paul has been writing this letter to Timothy, uh, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, which is a church that he had planted during one of his missionary journeys. And he's been encouraging Timothy really in a, in a number of ways, but he's really ultimately his big encouragement to Timothy is, Timothy, keep going. Keep going. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep loving on the people and the church that you've been called to pastor. Keep uh, establishing godly leadership. Uh, protect the church from false teachers. And ultimately, right, he's calling Timothy to, as he continues as the pastor of this church, to finish well. That this is this great call he wants to give to Timothy to finish well, to not just start well as a pastor, but to finish well. And I want to start off our time this morning by actually fast-forwarding a little bit into the future from when this letter Paul wrote takes place. You know, as I mentioned to you guys weeks ago, this is, uh, according to many scholars, Paul's last letter before he is executed uh, for his witness uh, as an apostle of the church. And so I want to fast forward, go turn over to Revelation chapter 2 with me. And I want us to, to read um, John's words from the vision that he receives concerning the church at Ephesus. So Revelation chapter 2, <clears throat> let's start in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil your and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so, as, as John receives this vision, right, that 
he 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 communicates this about the church of Ephesus, right? He says, This is the this is a word for the church at Ephesus, which was Timothy's church, which is ultimately Paul's church, right? They, they care deeply about this church. And he says, I know your works, your toil, your your patient endurance, right? So the, the angel encourages and says, Look, I, I see what is happening. I, I see what you're doing, and I want to encourage you that I see all of these good fruits and good works in you. And yet, right, there's all there's this but but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Right, so think about this. Take a step back and think, okay, here is this message to the church at Ephesus on how he, he is both encouraged by their faithfulness and how they're dealing with doctrine and false teachers. And yet, with that same church, we see, right, Jesus saying, Yet I have this against you, and that's you've abandoned the love you had at first, right? And we need to take a second and just pause and think about, okay, what is, what is being referred to there? What is, what is the church's first love? And I just say this, Jesus, right? And, wh- and what we see is this very specific word to the church at Ephesus, ultimately, you know, from, from God himself, but through the apostle John by saying, hey, look, you guys have become so focused, maybe even on some of what Paul was saying to Timothy to root out false teachers and to care about doctrine, that you became so focused on these things that you became so focused on rooting out these things and becoming centered around doctrine and, and, and loving doctrine that you've, you've surrendered your first love, which is a sincere love for Christ and what he has done for you. And so we see this very specific word to the church at Ephesus from the Apostle John. But sadly, I also believe it to be true of so many churches today around the world. And I think it's a very real danger even for us if we're not careful. You know, Ray Stedman in his, in his commentary on the book of Revelation says, says this, sadly, we have to say that there are thousands of churches like this in our country and in our midst today. There are churches where congregations are still meeting year after year, Sunday after Sunday, doing religious things, singing hymns, reciting the Apostles' Creed, perhaps doing some good works in the neighborhood, but having no spiritual impact seeing no change in people's lives, no releasing of them from their sins, no changes in the morals or outlooks of a whole community, their light has failed. And I think ultimately when you get to Revelation chapter 2 and see the church at Ephesus really being warned in many ways, right? Because there's, this, is, this is a call for them to return to their first love, not to say, hey, you failed and I've tossed you aside, right? This is a warning being given to them. I believe that what Paul warns Timothy against in these first eight verses of chapter four was possibly not taken seriously enough. And that's why we read what we read in Revelation chapter two. So here's the question, right? How how does this happen? How does a church that saw 
amazing things like the church at Ephesus saw when Paul was there and, and had a faithful pastor and faithful church members like the church at Ephesus did? How does a church go from loving God and making much of him and making much of Jesus and centering their church around making much of Christ? How do they go from that to losing their first love? How does, a, how does a church go wrong? And I believe it's exactly what we see Paul say to Timothy here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And it's that the church, over time, their faithfulness erodes when they replace the word of God with the wisdom of man. When they turn to things like psychology, politics, programs, things that can be helpful and tools to help us navigate the world around us. But the church replaces the word of God with these disciplines and with the wisdom of men. And what we see is anytime you notice a church abandoning its first love and turning away from the gospel and turning away from fidelity to Christ and love for him. What I see consistently, the story can start out differently every time, but what you ultimately see is a failure, a failure to keep God's word as the central anchor to the mission of the church. It may manifest itself in different ways, but Church family, hear me when I say this. A church that has strayed from the word of God is a church that has strayed from God himself. Because God's word is where he reveals himself to us. It's where he corrects us. It's where he renews our mind. It's where he teaches us to follow him. And a church that sways from his word will ultimately end up swaying from him. And so here's what we're going to see this morning in our text, and hopefully it will encourage us to stay the course, to demand amongst ourselves, to demand among ourselves a, a fidelity and a commitment to God and his word. But here's what we're going to see, right? And I have this kind of this big theme that I hope we'll take away from Paul's words to Timothy this morning, and then kind of some subpoints under that. But here's kind of the main idea and the main crux of what we're going to see Paul say to Timothy. God's word is our anchor in guarding our hearts and encouraging us to fulfill our mission to Christ. And we're going to kind of three, see three subpoints under that. We're going to see that God's word is powerful and sufficient. We're going to see that God's word helps us to endure intolerance. And we're going to see that God's word will help us to finish well. Right, and we're going to see those three things, and Paul's going to kind of share each one of them with Timothy as he goes through these eight verses so that ultimately Timothy will find his hope being stored up as a pastor not in his own ability, his own speaking, his own leadership, but in the Word of God. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
starting in verse 1. I want to look at these first two verses here, right? And kind of the main point that we'll see here is that God's word is powerful and sufficient. Let me, let me read these two verses to you. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Love being outside, isn't it great? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. All right, so Paul kind of, as we saw at the end of chapter 3, remember, right, one of the, the distinguishing characteristics of the end of chapter 3 is the point that Paul makes to Timothy on how the word of God is breathed out by him, that it's inspired by him, and that we go to God's word, right, for, for hope and for truth. And we see here that he's going to expand upon that idea because of how important it is and how he knows that there is a tendency amongst us as men and women to view the word of God not as our foundation to drive ministry, but as a support to ministry. As, a, as something we would use as help when necessary and not as the foundation for truth in our lives. Guys, I've been to a number of churches over the years that I wouldn't even say they don't use the Bible, but that the pastor or the church itself will have a bunch of opinions on how the world operates, and then they'll go find scripture to support their viewpoints instead of allowing scripture to be their viewpoint. Guys, you can make the Bible say just about anything you want it to say if you try hard enough. The question is, is whether you will allow the Bible to actually tell you what is true or not. And so Paul understands and even knows that within the church at Ephesus, there is this tendency, especially amongst the false teachers that Timothy is having to deal with, that the word of God is being perverted. It's being used for nefarious things. And so here, when we get to chapter 2, right after Paul has said to Timothy how powerful and important the word of God is, he starts out this chapter by saying, Timothy, I charge you. This is a, this is a command. right? This is Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, this is not open for discussion. I charge you to do this. And then he goes on to say, right, that his witnesses to this command are God the Father and Christ himself. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you as a pastor, hear me on this. This is God's command to us as pastors. Preach the word. He doesn't say preach philosophy. He doesn't say preach your opinions and go find some verses in Scripture that might coincide with it. No, Timothy, our aim is not to give people our opinions or philosophies. It's to encourage the church with the Word of God. Church, our aim is really in reality quite simple from a teaching and discipleship perspective. And this is how it should look. 
Our aim is to point people to the Bible, and we are called as the people of God to center our mission and our aim and our ambitions and our teaching on what God has said in his word. I talked about this last week, and I, I want to reiterate it, that when we, when we speak about the values of Aletheia Church, one of our values as a church is the Bible. And it seems kind of silly, right? Like, hey, a church, they like the Bible. That kind of seems obvious. But we want to make it abundantly clear, right, that for as long as the elders of this church are leading here and God raises up future elders at this church and men and women continue to teach and make disciples here. And as we continue to fulfill the mission of being the church of God here in this city, that the Bible will be the anchor upon which we go to for our guidance and our hope. And that we will seek to be faithful first to God and his word way before we ever seek to be faithful to man. And guys, hear me on this, because most of you guys here this morning, you're, you're in your early, early to mid-20s. You're going to be with us for a season, and then you're going you're gonna to move on somewhere. And you're going to do amazing things with your life. When you leave here, and you go and you start a family or whatever it may be, I, guys, I don't care what denomination you join. I don't care if the church that you go to forces you to wear a, a, a suit and a tie on Sunday morning or you can come look like a guy from a lumberjack commercial like I am this morning. What, whatever that may be, whatever church you're a part of, do you know what I'm going to care about the most when you go to contact me later and tell me about searching for a church? Does that church care about God's word, and are they centered on it? Because that is what matters to God, is that we value his word, and that's what we're teaching people. It's why we teach verse by verse here at Aletheia. As I said last week, you don't need my opinion, you need God's word. We need what God says, not what Kevin or Daniel or Theo or Derek or Stephen say. We need the word of God, right? And as, as Paul is encouraging Timothy, he's like, Timothy, this is, this is what you have to do. Preach the word of God. He says to him why that's so important. He says, be ready in season and out of season. Right? What he's saying there is be equipped to share God's word when it's popular with the culture and when it is not. That there are going to be seasons where the culture and the world around us will view the word of God as something authoritative and something to be followed. And there will be seasons when God's word is not viewed that way. But God's word is what he uses to communicate timeless truths about who we are and who he is. And that God's word, right? Look at the encouragement he gives to Timothy. He's like, Timothy, if you focus on preaching the word, guess what God will do with it? He will reprove, he will rebuke, and he will exhort. 
Right? If you are part of a church that is centered around making much of Jesus, that, that should be what we want, church. Right? That word reprove means to give a gentle correction. Right? The, the word rebuke means to give a stern correction. And every parent knows that there is a difference between those two things with your children. And then that, that word exhort means to encourage us to action. And Paul's point to Timothy is, this is what the church needs. But Timothy, you can't do this on your own with your own opinions. Only God's word can do this. Thank you. Right? God's word can give erring sinners gentle correction to come in line with God's word. God's word is powerful enough to correct even the most rebellious heart of stone and lead it to Christ. And God's word can encourage God's people to action that ultimately brings him glory. Church, can I, can I encourage us for just a minute here? I would classify our current cultural climate as out of season. I would, I, would, I would classify the time and period of life that we live in right now as being out of season. The church is not looked to as a pillar or beacon of truth in our culture. And I'm not going to go into why that is, because that doesn't matter in the context of what Paul is trying to get across to Timothy here. But here's what I can say. Timothy was dealing with the same cultural attitudes and debates that we face today. They might have been different in tone. They may have been different in what was actually being argued over. But ultimately, the crux of the argument is, is God God and will we listen to his word or not? And Paul's encouragement to Timothy and to us, church, some 2,000 years later, the word of God is sufficient both in season and out of season. Teach, exhort, and even debate people if necessary, but do not back down from allowing Scripture to be our source of truth about God and who He is. Now he goes on to tell Timothy, Timothy, don't just, don't just recognize that the word of God needs to be what you are preaching and teaching and centered on as a pastor. But also here's how you need to move forward in your ministry with the word of God as your anchor. Do so with patience and teaching. Paul's reminder to us as a church, I don't know if this is true of you guys, but it's definitely been true of me in the now 16 years that I've been walking with Jesus. I hear something, I learn something about God, and then I forget it. And God's word is there to remind us consistently to return to him. And this is why we preach the word of God, because we are quick to forget what God has done for us. 
we are quick to forget our need for Christ and what he's done. And so we preach and teach the word of God with patience and teaching because we need constant reminders, no matter how long we've been a believer, of God's faithfulness to us in Jesus. As I was thinking about that this week, I think it's fitting that God refers right to his people as sheep. And he calls us to have a childlike faith. Right? And I was thinking about, I've been better able to understand the heart of the father after I became a father. And, and obviously, you know, Jesus makes plenty of examples of saying, you, you as, an, as a bad father, Kevin, just imagine how much better the good father is. Right? But one of the things I've seen consistently with my oldest son, Gideon, some of you guys know him, incredibly intelligent, probably has an IQ higher than me. Like, I, I joke with my wife of like, I'm like super concerned that like once he hits middle school and high school and begins doing schoolwork, like I am not going to be able to understand what he's talking about. I mean, like just to give you like a quick example, right, of like my oldest son and, and who he is and like kind of just how he operates. I wake up yesterday morning and I'm getting my youngest son ready for his basketball game, which is free entertainment. I mean, it's amazing watching five and six year olds play basketball. It's just the absolute best thing. You know, like half of them are kind of playing. The other half are like high fiving the enemy team. You know, it's just awesome. But I'm, I'm getting Josiah ready for his basketball game. And I, I go over to the microwave right, to prepare my, my quickly um, microwaved breakfast burrito that has probably no nutritional value or content, but whatever. And I open up the microwave, and Gideon's breakfast is sitting there, and it's, like, cold. And I'm like, dude, like, what's going on? Like, what, like why is your breakfast in the microwave? Oh, I forgot I made breakfast already. I'm like, oh, well, like, what have you been doing? Dad, I've been reading this book about volcanoes. And then I proceed to learn everything that there is to know about volcanoes for the next 10 minutes while I eat my breakfast, all the while being like, dude, I love you, but I do not care. <laughs> like, I, I, I just don't. Like, not planning on hanging around volcanoes, not a geologist. Like, cool. And here's the thing about my kid. He's got that for life now. Like he's crazy. Like that, like that, that is there for life. You will see Gideon 20 years from now, and you could walk out to him and be, hey Gideon, can you tell me about volcanoes? He's like, yeah, well, not when I was nine, I skipped breakfast one morning to learn about them. Right? And so, like, Gideon has this, this ability, right, to be able to appear to be more mature than he actually is, right? Because of his intelligence. And so when he struggles with maturing and growing into adulthood, into manhood. Right, one of the things that even he's hard on himself, right, is he lacks self-control at times. Right? And I think that would be true of all of us at times. And one of the things I've had to do as his father and Jackie as his mother is say to him when he falls short of even the standards he would set for himself, of control of his behavior, whether it's in school or with his friends or at home or whatever it may be, right, he really beats himself up and he really gets down on himself. And like, we'll say something to him and, and you, you'll see him. He's just frustrated that we had to tell him and correct him. And I'll just say to him, Gideon, relax, buddy. Mom and dad love you. 
God has called us frequently to remind you of self-control. To encourage you when you err to turn back to the narrow way. To follow God and to love him. To correct you. Right, to gently, right, at times, if need be, reprove you. And at times, if your behavior demands it, rebuke you. But to point you back to the way that you should go. And guys, this is the heart of a parent with their child. Right? To correct them with joy and lead them in the way that, that they should go. And guys, I would tell you this. This is the way God deals with us. And the primary way that he wants to correct us and to remind us when we step out of line is through his word. Church, God's word is his gift to us to remind us of our need for him and what he has done for us. And so some of you may be sitting there thinking, well, yeah, Pastor Kevin, I hear you. But this is Paul speaking to Timothy, and I'm not a pastor, and I'm not going to be preaching, so, so I'm, I'm not sure how this applies to me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure how to take this, this call, this command, this charge that Paul gives to Timothy to preach the word. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how this applies to me. I'm not called to be a pastor. Right? I'm going to go be a teacher. I'm going to go be a doctor. I'm going to go be a businessman. I'm going to go be a businesswoman. First and foremost, this, right? Just because you don't preach the word doesn't mean you shouldn't consider being a part of a church that teaches and preaches and exalts the Bible to be an important thing that you consider with your church family moving forward. When we read God's word, we are hearing from him. And when we hear from God's word, we are both convicted of sin and reminded of God's faithfulness to us and encouraged or motivated to repent and live for him. But here's the other thing. We are all called to preach the word of God to ourselves at times. And we are called as the people of God to bear with one another's burdens, to encourage one another when necessary. And that means that God asks of us to know him and to know his word. Whether you have the privilege and the opportunity to preach and teach the way that I would, or you may just be a faithful father and mother who gets to preach and disciple your children or your roommates or your coworkers or your friends. And this means that we can prioritize time in God's word alone. It means we can prioritize being in a church community to hear God's word. And this means we would prioritize responding to God's word by meditating and moving to action. Because in that God will be faithful to reprove, to, re to rebuke, and to exhort. And so this first point, right, that Paul makes here to Timothy. Timothy, preach the word because God's word is powerful and sufficient. Now he anticipates Timothy's pushback, right? It's like, you know, Timothy's gonna be like, Paul, you don't know how much worse it's gotten since you've left Ephesus. You don't know how unbearable some of these people in the church have been and how tough some of them have been and how tough the cultural attitude has been towards us and to the word of God. And so 
Paul's going to move forward and say, Timothy, but God's word helps us to endure intolerance. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me in chapter 4. Look at what he says. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. He says, Timothy, if you think it's bad now, just wait. People are going to become increasingly hostile to God's word. They will not endure sound teaching. They won't even listen. And it's going to get so bad that they're going to accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. Right? They're, going to, they're going to build churches and they're going to create uh, communities that don't like what the Bible says. And so they're going to get their own teachers. And these teachers were going to, are going to affirm their own passions and not love God. I think it's important for us to pause and remember for a second that just because an organization might call itself a church doesn't mean that God views it that way. That there are organizations, and some of us don't realize this, there are entire organizations out there that are marketing themselves based upon what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. And I'll be honest with you. It's a lot more fun in the here and now to hear what you want to hear. But God knows that's not what we need. That these teachers will affirm them and their passions, but not a love for God. And that ultimately what is going to happen is that people will turn from truth and wander into myths. And if this is not an indictment, of much of our culture and the church today, guys, I don't know what is. I'm going to speak candidly here for a moment and state various ways I see this. The world of academia is one of the biggest purveyors of this right now. Right? And the irony, the irony to me, as someone who's educated and has a master's degree and has been through the education system, the irony is that the hatred for God that exists in the world of academia owes the church for its existence. Like it's the ultimate irony. The level of education that we experience in the West is a re- direct result of the reformers and their desire to make men and women inside the church literate so they could read the word of God. Many of the institutions around the world, not just in our country, around the world, were were created by faithful men and women who loved God and his word and set up universities of higher learning to both educate men and women on the word of God, but also how different disciplines outside of just church ministry and vocation intersect with the church. And yet in the world of academia, 
if you even believe that this book might be authoritative truth, your opinion on almost anything else can be discounted because you might view this book as being the word of God. Right, one of the things that was big when I was in college was this philosophical idea that was being thrown out that I think is almost now implicitly believed in many ways. It's not even argued anymore, but this idea of moral relativism. And you see how it impacts the world around you where everyone can believe whatever they want and feel whatever they want and no one can tell anyone else they're wrong. Unless, of course, you tell somebody that moral relativism right, is wrong. Then, of course, that's an absolute truth. But, you know, apparently we didn't take philosophy 101. And yet, it's not just in the world of academia that we see it. Right? There are entire organizations, faiths, and religions based around works-based performance, trying to earn God's favor and the approval of man. Scientology, Far Eastern philosophies, New Age spiritism, all different takes on the same idea. You can do it on your own and pick yourself up and connect with the divine. And probably the biggest thing I've seen recently, at least in our cultural climate and context, Politics have become the new church and the new faith of so many of those around us. Right, whether you believe in the elephant or the donkey and whatever person they're putting in front of you as your new Messiah every four years, But that is the place where so many of us right, run to. And Paul shares with to Timothy that this is going to happen. Meaning we should be as a church sitting back and saying like, yeah, this makes sense. It makes sense that the culture is struggling. Right? When we err from the word of God, all of these things, like all of us could fall prey to, to these things. It, it does, it sh this shouldn't surprise us at all. But he says to Timothy, Timothy, the word of God can prepare you and help you to endure the intolerance that will go on around you, right? And here's how, right? Look at this. Here's how you're to respond to this when you see this in the cultural climate around you, Timothy. Be sober-minded. Think clearly on how God's word guides you in every situation. Endure suffering. Right? He, he, I don't know how many times we've talked about this as we studied 2 Timothy, but we're going to reiterate it again. Church, if all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted and suffer. I know because my generation experienced it, and I know that many of you here, your generation has experienced it, and we want to do the same for our kids one day. We don't want our kids to suffer or want for anything. But if they're to be a follower of Jesus, you need to prepare them for some suffering. And you yourself need to be prepared for suffering because God's word promises it. And then he says to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. 
Timothy, that the way you respond to an intolerant culture and attitude and climate toward the church and the word of God and to Christ himself is to fulfill your ministry. Be an evangelist, Timothy. Share both the bad news of who we are and the good news of what Christ has done for us. And again, I know, I know some of you guys are like, I'm not a pastor, Pastor Kevin. I'm not an evangelist, Pastor Kevin. I'm not Timothy. I'm not pastor of the church in Ephesus. How does this relate to me? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Right. I, 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 this is just my absolute favorite passage in all of scripture, right? Some of you guys have been around at this point. No, anytime something like this comes up, you just know what I'm going to do. All right, I'm going to take us straight to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right? Because here's what happens, right? Someone becomes a new believer and like, like the third memory verse you ever learn is this one, right? Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Awesome. Yes and amen. And you're like, yes, I'm a new creation. Like, this is great. God's done a work in me. Celebrate, right? But then look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, it's the church, what? The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to who? Us, the church, the disciples of Christ, the people of God, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, right? So see what he's saying so far? Hey, yes and amen that Christ has made you a new creation. And because you are a new creation, you have been given a ministry. You've been given the message of reconciliation to tell the world what God has done for them in Christ. And then look at this. Therefore, because of that, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through who? Us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now guys, I don't know if you know what an ambassador is or what that job entails, but an ambassador represents their host country or nation and they do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And during a leap year, they do it 366. So if, like, if you were the U.S. ambassador in Mexico, you would be doing the work of American interests in Mexico all the time. And what Paul is communicating to the Corinthian church is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called by God to be doing the work of the kingdom of heaven all the time. That your primary allegiance doesn't belong to the United States or if, you're, if you come from somewhere else, whether I know we've got people from Brazil here, we've got people from Germany here, whatever your cultural or national heritage may be, that when you belong to Christ, your primary allegiance is to him. and to carry forward the ministry of reconciliation. And he's saying to Timothy, and he's saying to us, 
do not get distracted or bogged down by the intolerance, but preach the word of God. Rest in the word of God. Know the word of God. Now, church, can I, can I, can I confess something to you? I get bogged down in the weeds and philosophy sometimes, I do. Particularly with politics. I consider myself to be a political orphan. Because I don't like any of them. And if you're a Republican here this morning and that offends you, sorry, not sorry, I don't like your party. If you're a Democrat here this morning and that offends you, Sorry, not sorry. I don't like your party. Because I, I don't think either one of them really offer the hope of what we need. And I get easily irritated, and that leads to anger and frustration. And it makes me want to get bogged down with these arguments of like, well, yeah, they do this wrong, but yeah, they do this wrong, and no one wants to do the right thing. And I, I just get, I get so frustrated with it. But can I tell you, when I'm living out my calling, when I'm living out the calling of God on my life to preach the word, to be an ambassador for the message of reconciliation, I can promise you this. My problems and irritations with people and with politics don't matter. When I desire to love God and to love people well and to make much of Christ, I can see things I disagree with and still have hope because I serve a king whose kingdom is not of this world, who rules and reigns with justice and righteousness. And I know that I can live to make his glory known to the world and that the rest is simply background noise around me. And I rest in God's promises that the suffering and persecution and intolerance that we face here and now is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul says to Timothy in verses 6 through 8, that God's word will help us and encourage us to finish well if we remain and abide in it. Right, look at what he says. He says, Timothy, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord. Right? See what he ultimately says he's going to get? It's Jesus. I get to be with Jesus. 
the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He says, Timothy, I can see my time on this earth is about, is about up. My ministry is coming to an end. And Timothy, I just, I just want to encourage you, so, as someone who has suffered and as someone as, that you have seen has, a, has experienced some of the highest of highs in ministry and some of the lowest of lows in ministry, Timothy, I just want you to know this. I regret nothing. Timothy, a life spent in serving, in service to Christ is a life well lived. It's why, it's almost as if at the end of his life, Timothy can look back on his letter to the church at Philippi where he said this in Philippians 1.21, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's able to reach the end of his life and that has remained true for him. He says, Timothy, I have sought to live for Jesus and I didn't do it perfectly, but I did it and I'm at the end of my life and oh, how glorious it's been. He says, I can speak with assurance, Timothy, that I have fulfilled my ministry because I've remained true to the word of God. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have what? Kept the faith. Notice he doesn't say, I've, I've kept the church together perfectly, that I've won every philosophical or political date, uh, debate that I've ever entered into. No, I've kept what? Faith. In Christ. Church, this is our call. To live for God. To love Jesus. And to love others. Right? Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 22. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to trip him up and they come to him. And one of them who's a lawyer questions him and tries to test him. And look at what he says starting in verse 36. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Which, which one is it? Which law, which commandment is the most important in all the law? And Jesus says this. He says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the measuring tool by which we, as professing followers of Jesus, use to see whether our lives are in line with God and what he would have for us or not. Do we love God and do we love others? And Paul, as he nears the end, is encouraged by God's word because he believes he has done just that to the glory of God. And he's going to leave Timothy with this beautiful encouragement in verse 8, right? Henceforth, right? He's like, hey, look, I'm at the end, Timothy. This is, this is it. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm at the end of my ministry. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, Will he award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing? He says, 
I see Jesus and I see what awaits for me in heaven. A reward for faithfulness to him. Right, and he, I think, you're, you know, there's two separate sections of scripture we can kind of look to towards us. The first one I want to share with you is 1 Peter chapter 5, right, where Peter is talking to the, the, the church and how they've been exiled and how uh, they've been persecuted. And, and look at, as he's encouraging the elders to partake in the suffering for the glory of God, right? Look at what he says in verse 4 of chapter 5. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Look, he's, he's, saying, he's saying to these persecuted churches, stay faithful to God. Right? The, the unfading crown of glory to those who find their hope in Christ is worth far more than the opinion of man. Right? And then if you turn over to Revelation chapter four, John has this vision of the, the throne room of heaven and what it looks like. And as that unfading crown of glory is given, right, all of creation is surrounded around Jesus, just praising him, right, and exalting him for who he is, right? And when you get to verse nine, right, look at what John sees. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. This is just eternity, just at the feet of Jesus, just praising him for who he is. And look at what it says. They cast their crowns before him, before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Church, whenever I think about the life that is to come for those who are in Christ, the reward and the crown that awaits us for faithfulness to Christ and his word, this beautiful picture in Revelation 4 that will be given crowns or rewards for righteousness and fidelity to Christ. And all we're going to want to do is lay them back at the feet of Jesus because of this. There awaits for us in eternity not only eternal life with God the Father, but God actually rewards us for our faithfulness to him and his mission. And Paul is so thankful to God for that faithfulness and that promise that he looks forward to it as he awaits his death. And guys, whenever I think about eternity and standing before Jesus, all I can picture is one of the final scenes in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King. And I, I love Lord of the Rings. Right? I love Tolkien. I love Lewis. I love the Inklings and all of their writings. I mean, we, we, my wife and I on our 10th anniversary went to England to visit my sister who lives in London. And I kind of had like two goals on that, unti- that entire trip. I wanted to go watch my favorite uh, English soccer team play. 
and they won, which is good because they don't anymore. They're really bad right now. It's terrible. But was to go watch them play. And the only other thing I wanted to do in all of Europe was go to the pub that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien used to sit in and, and, and spend hours in talking and discussing their writings and editing one another's writings and whatever else they were doing. And I, like, it was hilarious because like, when we told my brother-in-law like this, he's like, you want to go to a random pub in Oxford, England? And you know, as we went there, I mean, I'm, I'm totally geeking out. Like, I'm just like, oh, gosh. <laughs> he sat in here. And my wife is like, dude. You need a life, right? Yeah, like we went to Paris. We did all these cool things in London. Could not, could not have cared less about London. It's like, oh, the queen's here. Cool, don't care. We seceded. <laughs> Do not care. Right, but was super excited about this. And one of the things I love about Tolkien, and I know some of you guys that are even bigger Tolkien geeks than me, right? You're like, it's not an allegory, Kevin. Like everything in the Lord of the Rings is not meant to be an allegory. I get it. First of all, Tolkien's wrong. Allegory is a completely responsible literary device that you can use if you become a writer one day. But the hilarious thing is, is there's actually allegory all throughout the Lord of the Rings. Imagery, whatever term you want to use for it, if Tolkien would be furious with me if I called it allegory. There's imagery littered throughout the Lord of the Rings because of Tolkien's Catholic faith, right? We see all these different things about how his faith in God influenced his view of this world he had created in Middle Earth. And I love this final scene after the ring has been destroyed. And if you've never read it, the, the spoilers are coming, so I apologize, right? But the ring has been destroyed, right? The, Evil has been defeated, right? And you see Aragorn has been coronated as king and Middle-earth is celebrating the defeat of evil and this coronation of a king who's finally gonna lead with justice and righteousness. And I, I wanna actually play the scene. Will you throw the scene up for me? This, this scene gets me every time. My friends, you bow to no one. Think, think about this for a minute. The God of the universe is going to give you, lay a crown upon your head for faithfulness to him. Think about it. I mean, like, the reason why that scene impacts me so much is because, guys, I feel like a hobbit. And it's not just my height. Think, think about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Think about everything they go through. And think about how really insignificant the role the hobbits have in that whole story. You have Frodo marked with suffering and turmoil and can't even throw the daggone ring in the lake of fire when he finally gets there. Right, he suffers and he experiences torment. Right, he he faces persecution and suffering. Right, and he's got Smeagol. Right, this entire time, just like harassing him the whole way there. Like in the turmoil that he faces, how many of us can relate with that level of suffering and turmoil in our lives as followers of Jesus? Some of us might relate with Sam. 
right? The faithful friend who bears with the burden of others and is there to just carry his friend and his heart breaks for his friend. And uh, that, that scene at the end at, where they're climbing Mount Doom, right? And Frodo can't go any further. Right? And Sam picks him up and takes him up to the top. How many of us feel like that as followers and believers in Christ? How many of us might feel like Pippin? Filled with folly and stupid decisions our entire life. But also filled with faithfulness and repentance. How many of us might feel like Mary? Intelligent and faithful. Though having a seemingly insignificant role. And doing so little. Because the enemy will play on our emotions. He will tell us that the role you're playing in the kingdom of God doesn't matter. To cause you to question whether God is really good. To call you to question whether God's word could really lead someone to repentance and faith in Christ. And the reason that scene, and I'm not a man of emotion, just cuts me to the core. Because God looks at the role we play in the proclamation of the gospel. He says to us, you matter. And there's a crown of unfading glory that awaits you. Keep going. Keep going the way those four little hobbits from the Shire did. Remain faithful and true to the word of God. Church, can you imagine? A day is coming where we will stand before the King of Kings. And he will reward us if we continue and remain faithful. If we love his word, if we share the good news of the gospel, if we patiently endure and love others and teach them the word of God, then the promise that awaits us when we reach that heavenly place is that of the master who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Church, that is what awaited Paul. And I can assure you, the only thing that gave him that level of hope and confidence was God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit that resided inside of him. Church, Jesus is worthy. Suffer for him. Keep the faith. Finish the race. Some of us have a long race ahead of us. Keep going, keep the faith, preach the word, and let's center our lives on the word of God 
being faithful to him and his word, and let's allow God to do the rest.